0: Romans chapter 3 this morning, please. Romans chapter 3. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? As we are slanderously reported and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace they have not known there is No fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Father God, thank you for your word. I pray you'd guide us this morning as we think about this this concluding part of this long section that we've been looking at. And I pray you'd speak to us and teach us today. Fill me with your Spirit. Lord, forgive me for anything that would hinder my usefulness today. Help us today as we gather around the Word to be filled with your Spirit to teach, filled with your Spirit to hear. And uh, we just pray for great things to take place. Uh, Speak to us. Teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to speak to you this morning on a topic, What Advantage? What advantage? You'll notice in your bulletin there was no title there because I couldn't figure out what I was preaching until, you know, way past press time this week, but uh, that's where I want to go today. What advantage? And of course, that's based on chapter one, or chapter three and verse number one. I want to remind you, we've been talking about this for some time now, but in Romans one through three, Paul is dealing with one primary topic, and that is the universal need of mankind for the Savior. We've seen it over and over and over in every different way he could think of it. He's talked about those who have never even heard of the gospel. And he's concluded that they are in need of a Savior. He has talked about those who have some knowledge of of God, some morality, and he's concluded that they are in need of a Savior. And he's talked about the most privileged group of all. We talked about these last week, the Jews. And he has concluded that they, too, are in need of a Savior. And now we come to chapter 3, and I think here he is anticipating some of the responses from that Jewish readership. And uh, probably anticipating that this would raise some questions in their mind. And, And notice the question that opens the section. Verse number one, what advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? In other words, he's anticipating his readers asking if the Jews need a Savior just like anybody else, what is the advantage of being a Jew in the first place? And that's what I think he's dealing with in these 20 verses. And so let's examine those. And I'd like to examine this. I, I have four points to my outline this morning, and I want to, each, each point is going to be one word. And if you're taking notes, you could just write down these words. The first word is the word advantage. Advantage. What advantage then has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way. Chiefly because to them were committed the oracles. Of God. What advantage? Put yourself in their place. They have been taught that they are a privileged people, that they are a chosen people. And uh, now Paul is saying to them, you need a savior just like everybody else. And so it's a valid question. What good is it to be a Jew if they are no different than anybody else? What's the point in the whole thing? And Paul deals with this. Throughout the book of Romans, you're going to see the phrase to the Jew first and also to the Greek or also to the Gentile. You'll see him dealing with the Jewish people. He's going to deal with it in depth when we get to chapters 9 through 11, where he talks uh, quite in a lengthy fashion about this very topic. And his answer is that there was great advantage to being a Jew. Great advantage. And the top of the list... And actually, the only one he mentions here, he says, much in every way, as if he's going to give you a big, long list, and then he only gives you one. But much in every way, and the top of the list is, they were granted the oracles of God. They were given the oracles of God. They have the Bible. They have the Bible. These people indeed were and are blessed by God in so many days, but few things compare to the glorious truth that they have the Bible. God gave them the scriptures. Paul had already touched on this in chapter 2, you might remember. Chapter 2, verse 17, he said, Indeed, you are called a Jew. You rest on the law. You make your boast in God, know His will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law. That's what set them apart. That was the great blessing. That was the great benefit, the great advantage to being a Jew. He'll mention it again and expand on it in chapter 9 when he says, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom according to the flesh Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. Amen. They had the Bible, the law, and he reminds them of it again here in verse number two, that the thing that sets them apart, the great advantage to being a Jew was that they had been given the word of God. Paul isn't the only person in the Bible who makes this distinction, who explains this. Moses had said the same thing on several occasions, I think, but I think of Deuteronomy chapter four, verse seven, where he said, what great nation is there that God has so uh, near to it as the Lord our God is to us? Is to us, for whatever reason we may call upon him. And what great nation is there that has such statutes and righteous judgments as are in all this law, which I set before you this day? There is no other nation like this, Moses said, to whom God has entrusted the scriptures. The psalmist said he has not dealt thus with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise the Lord. Think of the wonder of it. This people, this particular group of people, God had given His Word to. No other people had been so blessed. No other people. No other nation had been so gifted. The Word of God entrusted to them. They weren't like those in far off lands who were limited in their understanding of God. They didn't need to only rely on the light of conscience and the light of nature that we talked about in chapter 1. They didn't need to because they had the Bible. And think about how that applies to you and I. Because is that not the same truth for you and I? What a blessed people we are to have the Bible. We don't need to wonder at God's will. It's right here. We have the Word of God. We don't need to ask, what must I do to be saved, as the Philippian jailer asked Paul, because it's right here. We have the Bible that tells us, the Gospel that tells us how we can know. Uh, We can know where we came from. We can know why we're on this earth. We can know where we're going when we die. Why? Because it's here. God has given us the book, and we have it all. God has given us the Bible, and with it, He has given us everything we need for this life and the next. All Scripture. It's given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable. It's good. It's needed. Psalm 19 talks about the fact the Word of God is perfect. and goes on to describe all the various ways that the Word of God is everything we need in our life. We have the Bible. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The psalmist said. In other words, it's, it just it tells me everything I need. Another place the psalmist said, "I know more than my teachers, because I have the word. We have everything that we need in the Bible, and that's what the that's what the great advantage was to the Jews, as well. Jesus told a parable one time, and uh, we've used that parable many times. It was the parable or the story, perhaps maybe maybe a real real event of the rich man and Lazarus. And you recall that at the end of that, the rich man in hell said, Hey, would you send somebody to my five brothers and tell them about this place so they won't come here? And uh, Abraham said to him, They have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them listen to that. And he said, No, 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 no. no. They need to hear somebody go from the dead. They need something miraculous. They need something uh, beyond that. And Abraham said, If they don't listen to Moses and the prophets... They won't listen to someone rising from the dead. And the truth is, if we won't listen to this, this is everything that we need God has given to us. There's nothing else that's going to convince us. So can you hear the Jews? Can you hear them asking Paul, what in the world is the advantage of being a Jew? And can you hear Paul's reply? What? What? You have great advantage. The advantage is God gave you the word. So that's the first word I want us to see this morning is advantage. The second word is rejection. Rejection. Today is Palm Sunday, and it's a day that we remember a very important event in the history of our Lord Jesus Christ. You recall, we reenacted it a little bit this morning. You recall that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, and he was presenting himself to the nation of Israel as their king. Uh, and, and, and you remember the story. It was, a, it was a triumphant day. We call it his triumphal entry because he rode in and people were shouting and singing and praising and All kinds of good things were taking place. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You can read about all that in the Gospels. But I find that that historical event that we celebrate today a very interesting illustration of what we're talking about right here because you know what? The Jews were offered the kingdom, their king was entering the city through the Eastern Gate, they had a choice whether to believe it or not, whether to receive it or not, whether to accept it or not. And as we know, because we read the rest of the story, we know what happened a few days later. They chose not. And they crucified their king. And that eastern gate has been closed ever since. So here's the question. Did their unbelief in Christ as their king change the fact that he was the king? Did their unbelief, did their rejection of him as king, change the fact that he was the king? And of course the answer is, no, of course not. Of course not. He wasn't as the king, regardless of whether they believed it and received it and accepted it or not. I love the story of Pilate. I, I think Pilate is such a fascinating person in the, the whole Eastern narrative. I, I don't think Pilate will be in heaven when we get there. I don't think there's any real evidence of that, although there is some Extra-biblical evidence, historical documents, which might indicate there was something happened. There about probably we will never get to talk with Pilate, but wouldn't you love to? Wouldn't you love to sit down and talk to him? What was really going through your mind? Such a struggle. As he washed his hands of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's one thing that I really love in the story of Pilate, and that's when he wrote the sign that was to go off the inscription, it was to go over the cross that said, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And he wrote it in multiple languages so everyone would know. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And the leaders of the Jews came to him and said, oh, anyway, don't put that up there. Put down that he wrote, or he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written. I have written. And I don't know if God was using him as a prophet right then or, or what, But it's the truth, is that it? It doesn't matter whether you accept it. It doesn't matter whether you believe it. He is the king of the Jews and of all. And so I think that's what he's talking about here in this passage. Paul is talking about these people were gifted with the Bible. He says, but what if some didn't believe? What if some lacked faith? And actually, that particular word there could be translated either faith or faithfulness. So some of you may be holding a translation that says faithfulness. Some were not faithful. Uh, Some lacked faith. Some didn't believe. Some lacked faithfulness. In other words, they didn't obey. But I think Paul's point is their lack of faith, their lack of faithfulness, it did not change the fact that what they had was the Word of God. What they had was the truth. Whether they believed it or not is irrelevant. It's still the truth. I think that's what he's trying to say there. Just as their lack of acceptance of the King didn't change the fact he wasn't as their King. So their lack of acceptance of the Bible... Does not change the fact that it wasn't is the word of God. Think about this: They had the Bible, they knew the truth, they knew God's will, they knew God's purpose, God's expectations, God's demands. How did they know it? Because they had the Bible, and yet they chose to reject it. And, and what if they did? Paul would say, "Too bad." You still. It, it just demonstrates that you still need a Savior. The very fact that you rejected it doesn't change the truth. What if they chose not to obey it, or they lacked faithfulness? And Paul would say, "Too bad." That lack of faithfulness does not change the fact that it is still the truth. And as a matter of fact, Paul said that even if every living person on the earth today were to decide not to believe God's word, that does not change the fact that it is God's word. If every man on earth said it was a lie and God said it was true, it was true. If every man, woman and child living were to suddenly decide that they're not going to believe what is in this book, it does not change the fact that it is true. And everything written in it would come to pass, just as he said, we ought to. We ought to underline and circle and memorize verse 4. Verse 4. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. Or, as the New Living Translation renders it, even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. Think about that. If the whole world says same sex marriage is okay, and God says it's not, is it okay? If the whole world says, It doesn't matter what you believe. We should tolerate all belief systems because all roads lead to the same God. And God said there's only one way, and that's through Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, which is the truth. What the whole world says or what God says. If the whole world says there's no such thing as absolute truth and everything is relative, and God says there are some very concrete concepts you need to accept, such as heaven and hell, and you're going to go to one of those. The whole world says the opposite, and God says one which is true. Paul said to these Jews that whether or not they believed the Scriptures was not the issue. God had blessed them with the Scriptures. The truth was in there. They were a blessed people. They had all that they needed. And that's what they would be judged by. You know, there's a bumper sticker that I I don't guess I've seen it in a while now, but it used to make my blood boil every time I'd see this on the back of a car. It said, God said it. I believe it. And that settles it. But see, that is simply not scriptural. It's simply not true. God said it, and that settles it. Take that belief thing out of there. Doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. It's true. It doesn't matter. There are people all over the world who will say, I don't believe in hell. Buddy, are they in for a surprise? Because there is a hell. And they're going to find out that it is true, whether they believed it or not. People seem to think, and I think this may be more prevalent in our society today than maybe ever before, but people seem to think today that they can just will stuff into reality. That their relative desire and whatever, this, that's what it means to me. Nonsense goes through their brain. It doesn't matter. There is truth. This is the truth. And whether or not we accept it is irrelevant. And so he says, the advantage is the Bible. And of course, then he has to deal with the fact they had rejected it. And then was a third world, a third word I want us to see, and that's the word comprehensive. Comprehensive. And this is the the, the long section, verses 9 through 18. And I I won't read that again, that that section, verses 9 through 18. But I want you to think about it. I want you to think about how it describes our comprehensive need. Paul's thought processes in these first three chapters of Romans are crescendoing at this point. They've been building and building. He's building up to the thought that everybody needs a Savior. And boy, he really is hammering it home in these last few verses, isn't he? He's saying it matters not whether we're talking about the person that's furthest away from God, living on some far-off land and has no opportunity to read a Bible, or whether we're talking about the people who are closest to God, the Jews who have the very Word of God, the very revelation. It doesn't matter. In the broad spectrum of humanity, Paul's saying, None get a pass, and all are in need of the Savior. I remember when The Passion of the Christ first came out, that, that movie that Mel Gibson put out. I remember that Mel was in great demand for interviews and was doing a lot of interviews. And I remember one particular one that I watched on television. I don't remember who the interviewer was, but whoever it was, he asked the the inevitable question, which was, uh, are you saying, Mel, that the Jews are responsible for the death of Christ? And Mel's answer was good. Not always good, but this one was good. He said, they don't get a pass. And it's true. Of course, he went on to say, nobody gets a pass and nobody does. This is Paul's argument. None get a pass. All, 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 all need the Savior. And to hammer home this point to his Jewish readers, he goes through and he pulls out all these different verses, verses 10 through 18, all these verses from the Old Testament that they would have recognized that make his point and that show the comprehensive need uh, of us. For our Savior. How, how very lost we are. Notice in verse number 11 he says our mind uh, is in need. Our, our mind is mentioned there. None understand. In verse number 11 the will is mentioned. None seek. In verse number 12 the choices we make are mentioned. All are turned aside. In verses 13 through 14, he's, he's talking about our speech. Our every word is corrupt. In verses 15 through 17, our feet are mentioned. Every path we take is wrong. In verse number 18, our eyes are mentioned. We cannot see the right, the truth. We're blind to it. It's a comprehensive list. Do you see that? And I think what Paul is trying to say to them and to us there is that we are corrupt from the top of our head to the sole of our feet. Through and through, helpless, no hope, and in need of a Savior. You need somebody to deliver you from this terrible inward lack, this comprehensive state of hopeless lostness and in and of yourselves. And yes, he's saying to you, my Jewish friend, you are utterly and hopelessly a sinner. Christopher Ashe was uh, one of the speakers at the Basics Conference. It might have been just last year. It was one of the recent times. He's written a book recently called Discovering the Joy of a Clear Conscience. And I want to read you an excerpt from this book. Because in here he talks about King David. You remember King David's sin. Uh, We use it as an illustration a lot. But he's talking about David's response to that. In Psalm chapter 51, David repented of his sin. And uh, you can read that sometime on your own. But listen to what he said. He said, if we were to ask King David, why did you do what you did? He might say, I did it because I was tempted, because of pressure. I was, as it were, shaken. My equilibrium was disturbed by outside influences, things that happened to me. I was weary. I looked out of the window and saw this beautiful woman, and one thing led to another. I was shaken. That's what we instinctively say. I said that because I was stressed. I did that because I was tired or sick. My upbringing has conditioned me to react that way. But David's deep answer in Psalm 51 is, I committed adultery because there is adultery in my heart i covered up because there is pride in my heart. i murdered because love of self and hatred of others is in my heart. The really shocking thing I have discovered, says David, is that what I did expressed who I am. Evil came out of me because there is evil in me. What David did was not ultimately out of character, but a terrible revelation of the fallen character of his heart. And David's awakened conscience acknowledges this hard truth in this psalm. And it's true for us, too. That cutting remark came out of me because there's pride in my heart. That defensive hostility showed itself in that meeting because there is a selfish insecurity in my heart. That misleading email that showed a colleague in a bad light came out of me because there is malice in my heart. The cover-up lie had its roots in a selfish regard for my reputation. The failure to give was because of a love of money. The laziness arose because the thought in my heart is that the world owes me a living, and so on. And therefore, the proper response is deep. As the prophet Joel put it, rend your heart and not your garments. To tear one's clothes in Old Testament culture could be just a superficial thing. Going through the culturally recognized symbols of mourning for sin, what is needed is a torn and broken heart, which is much, much more painful. And see, that's where Paul's leading his readers. He's leading them to see, to an understanding of the comprehensive nature of their need. Top of your head. The sole of your feet, inside and outside, through and through. We are broken. We are broken all over. We are broken in and out. And that leads me to the fourth word. We've seen the word advantage. We've seen the word rejection. We've seen the word comprehensive. And now the fourth word may sound familiar because it's the word advantage again. I think he returns to that in verse number 19 and 20. Verse number 19 and 20, where I think he's going to to explain now what the real advantage is. Remember the question that he's asking. And he's been answering in these 20 verses. Is there any advantage to being a Jew? He mentioned it again in verse number 9, even though we didn't talk about it. Are we better than others? And That's the Jews speaking there. Are we, the Jews, better than others? Does our privilege give us an advantage over anybody else? Remember that question. And as we have seen, he's answering yes, because God gave the law, God gave the word, God gave the Bible to this group of people. But now he clarifies, he says, it was not because they would be saved by that. It was not because they would be saved by obeying the contents of that law, because he has now beat them and us over the head with the reality that we can't do that. We can't live according to what's in this book. And he says here in verse number 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No, he says, rather, here's the advantage. Here's the advantage. It is because by looking into that law, you can see your need. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Where others must wonder and where others must want, must must make do with some vague knowledge that there is a God and that He has some kind of a requirement on their life, the Jews were blessed to know the Jews could open the book and they could see exactly what it was that God wanted from them and they could see His description of their need. And the law was there to help them see that and to help them see God's great, unbelievable solution in the Savior. I don't know. Do you see the application to you and I? These, I suppose, are deep truths. But I think the application is pretty clear. We, like the Jew Paul addressed here, have been given knowledge to God in the Bible. We can open it and read it. We can understand. We can know what God says of us. And we don't have to wonder, because we have his truth in front of our eyes. Truth that reveals this truth. All of us, all, all, all are in need of a Savior. That's what the Bible teaches us, and that's the great value of the Word of God. It was to them, and it is to us. So four words, advantage, rejection, comprehensive, advantage. It's not part of our text today, but I do want you to notice just two more words in in the very next verse, verse number 21. I'll just mention them because we'll get on to them next week. They mark the great turning point in Paul's argument. You might want to circle them. But now. But now. The point has been made. It has been remade. Paul's conclusion cannot be mistaken or ignored. I I don't think any of you are struggling to know what the conclusion of the first three chapters of Romans are. All of us are in a hopeless condition. All of us are lost. But now. Verse number 21 starts. God has provided a solution. And we'll talk about that next week. And you can read ahead and think about it. And be, be, be thankful for that wonderful solution. You're going to see the subject is going to shift from our terrible deficiency to God's unbelievable provision. You're going to see it shift from the lostness of our soul to the salvation provided in Christ. You're going to see it shift from our total depravity to Christ's total forgiveness, from eternal despair to absolutely everlasting joy. But now, he has spent so much time explaining that the wrath of God is revealed. That was Romans chapter 1, verse number 18. But now, He's going to talk about how the righteousness of God is revealed in our Lord Jesus Christ. John Calvin said, if we do not perceive our wretchedness and poverty, we'll never know how desirable is that remedy that Christ has brought to us. And that's what Paul's been doing. He wants us to see the need. Do you see the need? Does anybody not see the need after eight weeks of discussing how all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Do you not see the need? I hope you do. And if you'll just hang in there a little bit longer, stay tuned for the good news of the gospel. But now the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul's done laying out the bad news. Now the good news can begin.